The Writer Files, a member of the Podglomerate Network. Greetings, scribes. Just a quick break to recommend our recent sponsor's Book of the Month. Book of the Month makes reading better by offering members a few new book selections each month to help you cut through the noise, save time, and make it easier to decide what to read next. Each month, the editorial team reads through hundreds of new titles and picks five to seven of the best new books for you to choose from. All of these books are good, so you really can't go wrong. Book of the Month helps readers like you and I find books that we wouldn't normally discover on our own. The cool part is selections largely focus on new and upcoming authors in multiple genres. Book of the Month also recently launched curated audiobooks, so members can get a hardcover or an audiobook each month, which you can then download and listen to right in the app. This month, I chose A Little Supernatural Fair in Murder Road by New York Times bestselling author Simone St. James, described as the story of a young couple that find themselves haunted by a string of gruesome murders committed along an old deserted road in this terrifying new novel. Just go to bookofthemonth.com to pick your first book and join Book of the Month. That's bookofthemonth.com. And for a limited time, you can join and get that first book for just $9.99 with the code CHIRP. That's C-H-I-R-P. Enjoy. This is Rainmaker FM, the digital marketing podcast network. It's built on the Rainmaker platform, which empowers you to build your own digital marketing and sales platform. Start your free 14-day trial at rainmakerplatform.com. These are the Writer Files, a tour of the habits, habitats, and brains of working writers, from online content creators to fictionists, journalists, entrepreneurs, and beyond. I'm your host, Kelton Reed, writer, podcaster, and mediaphile. And each week, we'll find out how great writers keep the ink flowing, the cursor moving, and avoid writer's block. Welcome to another guest segment, where I pick the brain of a neuroscientist. Have you ever wondered why great writing creates an emotional response in readers? Well, research scientist Michael Gribko of the Department of Psychology at the University of Washington returned to the show to help me define empathy from a scientific standpoint. He'll shed some light into the darker corners of our understanding of how to tap into the hopes, dreams, and fears of your readers. If you missed the first installment of The Writer's Brain, How Neuroscientist Michael Gribko Defines Creativity, you can find it at writerfiles.fm, and on iTunes. In this episode, we'll discuss how science is changing our definition of empathy, what actors and doctors have in common with writers, how to resist the dark side of empathy, the difference between good storytelling and great storytelling, and why writers need to crawl inside the heads of their audience. Mr. Gribko, welcome back to The Writer Files. I appreciate you taking time out from your busy schedule to uh, chat with me about empathy. Thank you for inviting me back. I'm happy to be here. So empathy definitely comes up a lot in, you know, when we're talking about probably just effective writing of any discipline. And I'll start with a quote from Mark Twain, who said that, I quote, the author shall make the reader feel a deep interest in the personages of this tale and their fate. And, you know, I think he, he, he's talking about empathy for sure. Yeah. It may not be called empathy in particular in, you know, like fiction writing, but, you know, empathy really is 
at least part of the definition is just kind of a study in understanding and entering into another person's feelings, kind of entering, you know, inhabiting their feelings. And this is definitely what great writers strive for of all disciplines. So I don't know. I think we should just start out by kind of looking at some of the definitions from a psychological perspective, at least so that we can get into that neuroscience piece. So let me start with Oxford English Dictionary's take um, from the psychological theory of Laswitz. I don't know if I'm saying that correctly, but just essentially a physical property of the nervous system analogous to essentially the electrical capacity um, or believed to be correlated with feeling. Now, I have no idea what that means. Yeah, that's a little vague to me too. So, um, <laughs> okay. But, you know, what we're starting to do, we're starting to link that, um, you know, empathy has something to do with the brain, basically. Okay. So that's what electrical capacity means yeah. in the nervous yeah. system. Okay. So in, in psychology and aesthetics, we have a definition that says a quality or power projecting one's personality into or mentally identifying oneself with an object of contemplation and so fully understanding or appreciating it. That sounds closer to kind of a, a layman's yeah. definition of empathy. And then finally, that psychological definition of the ability to understand and appreciate another person's feelings and experience. Yeah, and I think that one's probably the most concise and um, yeah, and kind of hits the nail on the head there. Um, so yeah, I think all these definitions are, are good and acceptable, interesting. But, you know, now things are changing a little with neuroscience because now that neuroscience is involved, we're really looking at the brain activity and what's going on in the brain and what's the neurological kind of correlates for the empathy. Yeah. One of the things I, I think is really interesting is empathy has sort of been recognized for a long time. And, you know, long before neuroscientists really started looking at empathy, humans have recognized empathy and kind of its power and its effects. Um, so it could be, it's kind of funny. It's one of these things where situations where scientists may be catching up with, you know, finally recognizing and catching up with what everyone else knew for a long time. But what's interesting now we're starting to understand how the brain works in regards to empathy. So we can start studying it and, um, start understanding some of the deficits and problems with it as well. But yeah, it's really interesting. You know, this goes back a long time. Your reference to pathos. Yeah, well, let's talk about that for a second. I mean, I think pathos, or as the British say, pathos, um, is a good starting place for, for at least for writers. Because, you know, writers and, and online publishers and marketers, you know, we, we talk about empathy a lot as just really the ability to get inside the head of your audience, your customers, your readers. And just to go back a step here, I, I love... Eugene Schwartz, and he's kind of this copywriting guru of yours, but his, his book, Breakthrough Advertising, talks a lot about this and talks about the importance for copywriters to possess sensitivity, foresight, intuition. I mean, we're all saying the same things, right? And this was written decades ago, but it, you know, th these are the ability of writers to really tap into people's hopes, dreams, fears. And pathos is, is something that's, you know, been around forever. It's, it's that technique used in rhetoric that writers employ and many people employ in all disciplines to inform, persuade, and motivate the audience to feel something, right? Right. Yeah. And that reference to the 
pathos. You know, it, that was started. Was that Aristotle? Is that you know, it goes back? I think that far. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, this idea of you know that the concept of emotional appeal. You know, and this can be seen in acting, and you know, I think this is also seen. This is what we're getting at when um, actors are kind of encouraged to connect with their audience, and what they're really trying to do here is 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 the audience able to empathize with the actor? And the more the audience can empathize with the actor, the more connected and probably the better performance and the more the audience gets out of the performance or what have you. Um, sure. Also, I think another example, like doctors, have often been encouraged to empathize with their patients. And, um, you know, this is a lot. You hear about doctors having a good bedside manner. I think this is what they're getting at. Yeah. So, yeah, it's been around a long time. And... You know, only past few decades have really been studying empathy at the neuroscience level. And so from the neuroscience perspective, um, the definition has evolved a bit now. And one of the key components that empathy from a neuroscientist's viewpoint is that there's kind of these overlapping brain regions between a subject and an observer. So there's areas that are active whether we observe an individual going through some emotional state or performing some kind of task, or we do that task, go through that emotion ourselves. So are you now referring to kind of the mirror neuron? I, I'm not sure what the, what the terminology is from the neuroscience perspective, but that kind of mirror effect? Yeah, so this is, um, you know, neuroscientists generally refer to um, mirror systems. Um, and yeah, there's, there's also mirror neurons. And I think mirror neurons, you hear a lot about, um, it's become a popular term, but this is a really kind of a specific, um, set of neurons. And, um, so I'll kind of go into some of the history here if you want me to. Yeah, sure. I'd love that. Okay. Um, so kind of the background and can clear up a little confusion. Um, and, you know, we'll kind of start off with sort of the discovery of mirror neurons because that's what launched the whole idea of empathy and showing that um, it's a product or a consequence of um, neuronal activity. Um, so this was kind of a serendipitously discovered phenomena. So a group in Italy, I think uh, led by Rosaletti, um, was doing some work in the motor cortex of monkeys. And this was done in the early 90s. And they found a group of neurons that were active when the individual performed an action or observed a similar action being performed. So strictly speaking, these are really the only true motor, motor neurons that have been classified. Um, now most work being done on mirroring and empathy in the brain is done in humans, and we use fMRI. Right. Um, so this is something we talked about a little bit in our previous discussion about creativity, was this fMRI technique. So there's some, some limitations to this technique, and the main one is that we're measuring blood flow in the brain. And when neurons increase activity, they require more blood. So therefore, we correlate an increased blood flow to a certain area, in, area of the brain with increased activity, neuronal activity. But we don't have the resolution to say whether a specific group of neurons is active. So if you're comparing two individuals 
you know, one performing an action and one observing one, we can tell if similar areas of the brain are active, but not specific neurons within those areas. So for this reason, we usually don't use the term mirror neurons, kind of, um, we refer to these as mirror areas or mirror systems. Gotcha. Just for, for specificity and, you know, we really can't tell specific neurons are active. But all this work, you know, the initial work just finding the mirror neurons in the monkeys really sort of opened the floodgates to this kind of research and provided a lot of answers to a lot of the questions neuroscience, neuroscientists have been asking. Um, so, you know, continuing this idea of mirror systems, some cool work was done with just touch. So this is another area where we see mirroring. And, um, you know, good examples of this are like um, if you're watching a movie and see a spider calling up someone's arm or a snake sl- slithering down someone's shirt. Hmm. And you kind of get, you know, you, you get the heebie-jeebies kind of. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a similar system. You know, you can actually feel that. Um, so some work done by Tiana Singer, who's now in Max Planck in Germany, um, showed that there are overlapping brain areas active, whether we are experiencing like physical pain or observing someone else's pain. Um, so basically, in, she took individuals, put them in an the MRI, and gave them a brief shock, like to their hand. And, you know, nothing too painful, but just enough to kind of like a pinprick. <laughs> and she, you know, observed what it, brain areas were active. Now, she kept the same individual, you know, in that fMRI, and she recorded their, you know, brain areas activated. But this time, that individual was over- observing the expression of a loved one going through the same painful, experiencing the same um, stimulus. And interesting, they found, you know, some of the same brain areas were engaged, whether an individual is actively sensing the pain or observing someone else's reaction to the pain. Mm-hmm. And this was also done again. Um, there's another study, like with a feather duster, similar results where someone's the similar brain activity was seen, whether someone um, felt like a feather duster rubbing up against their leg or watched the video of someone having the feather duster, like, rubbed up against their leg. Hmm. So this is... Um, you know, so this is still touch um, and physical mirroring. But I think now, you know, most people think about mirroring behavior and most people are, think about emotional empathy. And, and there's usually some component that this leads to kind of humanitarianism behavior. Mm-hmm. And empathy is sort of the driving force that's pushing us to help individuals in distress and to do good things. Philanthropy. Yeah, exactly. And although this is true and this this is an effect of empathy, there are also some kind of not so flattering effects as well. Um, so, you know, there, we also empathize anger and stress, anxiety, um, and those can have some real bad implications. Um, and then empathy gone too far, even positive em- empathy and love for others, kind of can lead to cronyism and nepotism. Hmm. So if you think of individuals who may be willing to hurt others to help the people that's clo- that are close to them, you know, they're empathizing with so much with the people that are very close to them, they'll harm others. Um, wow. I think kind of a good example of this is, you know, some corporate corruption. And uh, one of the examples that came to mind was like Bernie Madoff, where he was defrauding all these people but yet he had his sons and his family, you know, incorporated into his his company, and he was really taking care of them. So, 
lot of people look like Bernie Madoff. How could he do this? He, you know, he must have no soul. He must not be able to empathize. In fact, he, he was empathizing just so strongly with his family that he was willing to hurt other people. Interesting. Yeah. Almost uh, sounds like um, a cult. Yeah, there is. Yeah, I think there is a lot of that in, you know, some of these darker sides of humanity where we can almost over-empathize with hmm. the wrong people. So choose, choose who you empathize with. I guess <laughs> so, that's the lesson. Geez, it's kind of like <laughs> the force. Yeah. You know, don't go to the dark side. Just a quick pause to mention that The Writer Files is brought to you by the Rainmaker platform, the complete website solution for content marketers and online entrepreneurs. Find out more and take a free 14-day test drive at rainmaker.fm slash platform. It's all really fascinating stuff. And, you know, I think of, I can't help but turn to storytelling. And I know we're not, we're not covering storytelling in this episode, but you know, I mean, good storytelling is really utilizing empathy. I think so. Yeah. And great storytelling is probably activating some mirror systems. So in a sense, I mean, what, what's one of the takeaways for writers about the empathy piece being or realizing that the empathy really comes from the other side? Right. So, right. That's the, the key here is the observer is the one empathizing. Um, so the person reading your audience, they're the ones they're empathizing with the character or, or the story. So, you, yeah, the key is you want a believable character or or at least their emotions and their reactions to be believable and familiar too sure to the audience and this is what great storytelling does it really taps into that and so i mean i guess as online publishers and and you know we really are are all storytellers i keep saying storytelling um because it's an important piece i think in that in the empathy discussion, but, um, let's talk, let's just turn for a second to, um, kind of online marketing and, and online content creation. And, you know, I know I kind of pointed you towards this piece that Damien Farmer did called empathy maps and a complete guide to crawling inside your customer's head. And he's kind of echoing the sentiments that I had noted before about by Eugene Swartz about, um, well, I'll just kind of pull a quote out of there. We all need to know our customers in order to create products that they'll actually buy. And um, it doesn't start with the product. It starts with the customer. And that means the media you create, be it, you know, a podcast, a blog post, um, um, a story, an ad, whatever, screenplay, these all contribute to attracting that audience. And that, and as your audience grows, you learn more about their needs, wants, hopes, and fears. It's, I'm kind of uh, paraphrasing here, but okay. So can 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 empathy help writers of any discipline kind of to understand and get inside the he- heads of their audience and their hopes, dreams, and fears? That's a pretty simple, straightforward way of putting it. Yeah. Um, again, I think you, know, you have to realize what I said before, where it's it's the observers are the ones empathizing. Um, so a marketer trying to empathize with his or her, her target audience would be really difficult. And I think 
in the empathy maps, you know, complete guide to crawling inside your customer's head. This has sort of addressed the difficulty with this. And um, so it's really important to, as is brought up, to research and know your audience. And the more research you can do, the better you know the audience, the more likely you'll be to write a convincing story or, or come up with good characters and contact and make it some sort of emotional contact with your audience. Right. That emotional piece is, is key. And that's, you know, I mean, I, I guess one of the facts in there was that the, the, these emotional ads outsell informational ones by 20% or something. Right, right, right. Um, yeah, I saw that. So, um, yeah, yeah, that um, emotional, there's some research showing that emotional ads or ads that sh- which cause an emotional response in the audience were much more successful than ads that didn't. And, yeah, I don't really think this is, this really isn't the marketers, you know, empathizing with the customer. Again, I, you know, it's the customer was empathizing with the the character and the story that the marketers created to sell their product. Sure. And, um, and what's going on here is it's, this is more going back to memory and, um, you know, how we, how we remember things and how we acquire knowledge. And this is something we talked about in our previous discussion about creativity. Um, so I won't go through all of it again, but when we form long-term memories, well, there's a couple ways to do it. Um, a few things that influence the formation of long-term memories. And one of these is repetition. So just doing something over and over and over again. Uh, another key component is weight. And a great way to add weight to a memory is by attaching emotion to it. So I think what's going on here is, you know, the audience is having an emotional response and therefore they're remembering, they're associating that emo- emotional response with whatever product is out, is being sold or marketed and therefore, they're remembering it better. So it's helping consolidate mm. that memory. So those are well-worn pathways, in other words. Yeah. So it, it's just creating a stronger memory hmm. by when you make an emotional response. So if, if the audience is empathizing with the storyline, they'll just remember the product better or the content of that story better. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, can this go back to, I don't know, I, I was speaking with Adam Skolnick about kind of these writing formulas and actually James Patterson's masterclass on writing where he promises to kind of teach writers how to write a bestseller. And he's clearly learned the formula. A guy has almost a hundred bestsellers right. to his name. He's in the Guinness book of world records, et cetera. There is a formula. Hollywood screenwriters are told there is a formula and copywriters are often working from formulas as well. And empathy is a big piece of that. So it's almost like there's a well, there are these well-worn pathways because, you know, we've all been marketed to since birth, essentially. Sure. Sure. Yeah. But you know, so much of it is, is really about storytelling. I keep coming back to that. Good storytelling. Right. And yeah, it's, it's almost, well, I think it comes down to almost manipulating your audience. Not a good marketer is going to know how to pull a, or storyteller or writer, whatever, screenwriter, playwriter you know, knows how to get to their audience and knows, you know, how to write a character, a story in which the audience will connect on, you know, through empathy. And that just brings us full circle back to that definition of pathos, yeah. <laughs> which is pretty apropos. So, so how can writers of any discipline empathize better? Well, it's, you know, it'd be hard to really empathize 
So I think it comes down to, like they said, just doing research. Because to empathize with your audience, unless you're taking the time to really sit down and almost connect one-on-one with your target audience, if writers are willing to do that, go that far, Mm -hmm. and then they can start empathizing. If they're actually, you're empathizing when your emotional response is the same as the person you're observing. Hmm. So if the marketer or writer is actually getting angry <laughs> because of something that upset their audience, yeah. or getting sad because of something, some grief the audience is experiencing, then they're empathizing. Hmm. Well, it's really interesting to say that because I think some of the best online marketers and online content creators you know, are part of their target market. Yeah, and that's a great way. You know, probably... If you're marketing, sell it to yourself first. <laughs> Maybe that's a good way to start. Is this something that's going to... You probably are coming up with a solution to a problem that you had. Right. Right. Exactly. Like, is this something that's caused you some distress? Is there, Are you solving a problem? Is this something that's going to make your life easier, save some time? Yeah. And that's the good side of, of the force and the, and the empathy piece of, you know, you're not, you're not really manipulating people. You are helping people. Sure. And you're empathizing with their struggle. Hopefully. <laughs> right. Depends what you're selling. Right. I guess. Right. <laughs> well, that is really fantastic. I think, you know, I guess my next question is like, where do we go from here? How, how can we take what we've learned about creativity and empathy and look at kind of the next piece in the, in the neuroscience? You know, what I want to say is under the microscope. Okay. What's the next piece to look at? For writers, okay. Um, yeah, that's a good question. Would it be storytelling? Well, <laughs> we keep coming back story to storytelling. Yes, I think so. Yeah. Um, you know, this is so what neuroscientists are looking at now are really sort of the consequences of empathy, and it's an incredibly complicated area to study. So, one of the problems we're kind of running into is when we're talking about emotional empathy. There's a lot of different brain areas involved, a lot of different um, neurochemicals, and trying to find the fact is where, where's the root of empathy really in the brain? Hmm. There's some good studies going on, um, so I won't go through all of it, but like you know, one of the major chemicals we're looking at is uh, oxytocin, which has been kind of thought of as the love hormone, and norepinephrine is another one, and that's like the stress hormone. So, yeah, what neuroscientists now are looking at is getting deeper in these questions about consequences of empathy, looking at these more discrete structures, trying to narrow down the chemicals involved and areas involved. And what we're finding is, you know, our emotional states actually have a lot to do with our cognitive ability and have a huge influence on it. Mm -hmm. So, certain aspects of cognition fluctuate as our emotional states fluctuate. Also, I think stress is another important one. That's something we're looking at quite a bit. And funny, you know, we're looking a lot at um, a lot of work being done with um, mitigating stress and anxiety through, say, use of meditation. So mm, mm. that's, you know, we're going off into that. I think all this is important for writers, too. Like, yeah. just um, stress, understanding that your audience is going to comprehend things differently depending on their emotional states. Mm-hmm. Level of stress, anxiety, whatever, depression. Absolutely. And yeah, neuroscientists are trying to tease this out. It's really interesting and yeah, I'll have to keep you updated. <laughs> That's great. Well, you know, I think we should ask 
those questions. And well, I would love to have you back to talk about both storytelling and the meditation piece is huge. I think right now I'm very curious about that. I mean, I think I read something recently that said, um, that meditation is, has been shown to change the way your brain is working. So that is really curious to me. Right. There's a lot of going on and actually, um, Tiana Singer, who I mentioned, she did the pain study that I mentioned earlier. Um, she's doing a lot on that now. Now she's looking at getting deeper into emotional pain, but and she's a big advocate of med- meditation now. So yeah, there's there's um, I think there's an institute at Stanford that just opened, like Center for Compassion and Altruism Research, and they're you know doing all sorts of stuff with Buddhist monks and wow. things like that. Yeah, and and then storytelling is obviously. As we kept on touching on the the important to have a emotional connection with the audience, the characters um, that's really interesting as well. So great. So yeah, I'd love to be back and discuss some more of these topics. Fantastic! Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day. I know you guys are getting crushed over there, but I really appreciate it, and we look forward to having you back. All right, thank you for having me. I'll talk to you soon. Stay curious, my friends, and resist the dark side of empathy if you can. Thanks for joining me for a glimpse into the workings of the writer's brain. For more episodes of The Writer Files, or to leave us a comment or a question, drop by writerfiles.fm. And please subscribe to the show in iTunes if you haven't already. Leave us a rating or review and help other writers to find us. You can find me on Twitter at Kelton Reed. Cheers. See you out there. <laughs>